Famed UCLA basketball coach John Wooden once said this about character. He said, the true test of a man's character is what he does when no one is watching. Pauline Phillips, uh, whom you uh, better know as Dear Abby, probably, she wrote, the best index to a person's character is how he treats people who can't do him any good and how he treats people who can't fight back. And then writer Gamaliel Bradford wrote, in great matters, men show themselves as they wish to be seen. In small matters, men show themselves to be as they are. I think these things are true in general about our character. It's been said that uh, that power corrupts, or maybe money. But I don't think I don't think that's true. I think power, fame, money—those are things that reveal character more than corrupt character, because they just create more of those situations where we're dealing with people who either can't do us any good or can't do anything about what we are doing. They insulate us. They allow us to have more of those times where no one can really know what we're doing. This morning, we're going to read in 2 Samuel chapter 9 as David's character is revealed. To understand this story, though, we have to understand a previous story. So I've got to give you a little background before we dive into 2 Samuel chapter 9. Because today's passage deals with a covenant that David put himself in voluntarily, probably 10 or 15 years before today's story takes place. It happened back when David wasn't king yet. A man named Saul was king. And even though David had been very faithful to Saul and extremely beneficial to Saul, Saul got jealous and decided he wanted David dead. But Saul's son, Jonathan, was David's best friend. And Jonathan, to his credit, even though Jonathan was the crown prince of Israel, his dad was the king, he was the oldest son, he was next in line to the throne, Jonathan decided... I don't want to be the next king because God has decided David should be the next king. So Jonathan wanted David to be the next king instead of him. And there was this friendship and this loyalty between the two that was very special. And this covenant that David entered into was with Jonathan. And we'll read part of it right now. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 20. This is Jonathan speaking to David. And he says this, Don't ever cut off your loyalty, your loyal love from my family. Not even, David, when the Lord has cut off every one of your enemies from the face of the earth. Not even when God has called all of your enemies to pay for what they've done, David. So, or in that manner, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. 
Jonathan once again took an oath with David because Jonathan loved David. In fact, Jonathan loved David as much as he loved his own life. And later in the chapter, we read that Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for the two of us have sworn together in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. There's more to their solemn agreements, their covenants, but that's enough for today. Just understand, a decade or decade and a half before today's passage, David promised a man named Jonathan, when I get to be king, I'll be loyal to your descendants as I've been loyal to you and as you've been loyal to me, which is not the way the ancient world worked. When when one family has been the royal family and they are deposed and kicked out and a new family takes the throne, what normally happened is that new family would hunt down every member of the previous royal family and everyone who was loyal to them to exterminate them, to, to snuff out any opposition. David has promised to be different. And that's what today's passage uh, deals with. So we're going to read now 2 Samuel chapter 9, and it goes this way. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am, I'm your servant. Then king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to Ziba, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he's in the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lo-Debar. Verse 5. Then King David sent and brought uh, this son of Jonathan from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lo-Debar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. Here I am. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul. And you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, Mephibosheth prostrated himself and said, What is your servant, or who am I, that you should regard a dead dog like me? Verse 9. Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all of Saul's house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for Mephibosheth. And you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, uh, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly, and now he was lame in both feet. 
We start there in verse 1 where for some reason David recalls this covenant that we read about a minute ago that he had with Jonathan. I don't know if David waited until he was established enough as king to begin to do this. If he literally just remembered this, I don't know why he starts now. But David starts to ask a question around town. And here it is. Is there anyone still left alive from the house of Saul? Or are they all dead? Because if there's anyone alive, I want to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, the word that is translated kindness, the Hebrew word is right here. You read this this way, that says chesed. And because I don't want to make that noise all morning long, we're just going to call it hesed. That's the Hebrew word. All of our Bibles translate with the word kindness. Really, uh, hesed, well, it gets translated a number of different ways elsewhere in the Old Testament. It can get translated as steadfast love, loyal love, mercy, loving kindness, covenant faithfulness. That's really what this word means. Here's what hesed is. Hesed is love that comes because I'm in a covenant. And the reason that word gets translated so many different ways is because when someone has love that comes from a covenant that they are in, that can work its way out in different ways that look like different things, that look like kindness or mercy or, or things like that. Let me give you an example so you know what I mean. Um, I'm in a, a, a covenant with Rachel, a marriage covenant. Um, and any time one of our behavior is because I'm being loyal to my to this covenant that I am in. That's Hesed. So let's say, let's say that I have treated Rachel thoughtlessly or mean, unkind, whatever. I know that will be extremely hard for any of you to imagine what actually happened, except for Rachel. It's not hard at all for her to imagine that happening. But if Rachel decides not to treat me the way I sort of deserve but to withhold what I deserve because we are married and she wants to be loyal. She wants to treat me with what God would say is best in my life. That's hesed, but it would come out as as mercy because she's not giving me what I deserve. So it looks like mercy, but it comes from this concept of hesed. Or if Rachel were depressed, down, sad, and I, you know, I really had other things I needed to do, but I quit that to come and, and be with her to help her. That might look like compassion. It might look like kindness. And it is, but it's also hesed. Hesed is love that comes from being loyal to a covenant. Dr. Robert Bergen, a great Hebrew scholar, he said that in ancient Hebrew, ancient Israelite society, there, is, there was no higher um, personal quality than hesed. It is the, it is the pinnacle of, of, a, of a good person. Nothing outweighed it in importance. And what we see in verse 1 is that when David, for whatever reason, remembers this covenant he had with Jonathan, he begins to search 
intentionally for a way to show this hesed toward someone that he doesn't even know if they may be alive or not because he wants to be controlled by his covenant. And here's what's so remarkable about David here. This is why this is a good look at David's character when David is at his best. Because it's been 10 or 15 years since he made that covenant. The guy he made the covenant with is dead and has been for a long time. No one is ever going to know whether or not David does this. And even if they did, what could they do about it? Nothing. I want you to notice also, David doesn't just make this decision. He remembers his covenant. He doesn't just say, you know, if anybody ever calls me on this, if anybody ever says, hey, didn't you make a covenant with Jonathan? I'm going to decide now. If anybody ever calls me on this, I'm not going to lie. I will be faithful to my covenant. But let's wait and see if anyone ever brings it up. David knows. David brings it up. David goes on a search to see if there's anything he can do to be loyal to his covenant. For David, his covenant commitment controls his behavior, not his circumstances. And I want you to know, as we study this, you've you've heard the story already. He's going to find an heir of the previous royal family. That heir already has a son. He's going to reestablish him in uh, Saul's homestead, Gibeah, which is only three miles from Jerusalem. You think David maybe had some political advisors that would have said, you're going to do what? This ain't smart. You have no way of knowing that this clown won't someday say, hey, I should be the rightful king and start organ." David's like, I don't care. I'm in a covenant. I'm not controlled by what you think is smart. What might seem most reasonable. Any of my circumstances. My behavior is controlled by my covenant. So he's asking that question around. As he's asking it around, he learns of a man named Ziba. Ziba is not a relative of King Saul. He was it's called a servant of King Saul. He very obviously was a high-ranking uh, domestic official in Saul's um, the personal side of Saul's life. Anyway, we can tell in this chapter, he's very wealthy from the number of sons and servants he had. He's probably has assumed control of Saul's lands. His name is Ziba. Somebody finds Ziba, drags him in front of David, and David asks Ziba this same question that David's been asking around. Hey, is there, are there any surviving members of Saul's family? There's one difference when David asks the question of Ziba. I want to show him not just kindness. I want to show him the kindness of God. And I think there's two reasons. David says, I want to show him the hesed of God. One, I think David wants to 
emphasize to this man Ziba that my intentions are not nefarious. Like he uses sort of the name of God. Of, like I, I'm not going to kill this guy. <laughs> but also for David, the Hesed of God and the Hesed of David are kind of the same thing. You'll see in this passage, all David wants to do is treat Mephibosheth the way God treated David. I just want to show the kindness of God, which I have been shown, to someone else. David is the conduit. God is the author of of the Hesed. It's from Ziba that David first learns that his buddy Jonathan had a son that survived. We met Mephibosheth back in chapter 4. We learned in chapter 4, here's what happened. Uh, Mephibosheth was not born um, with a disability. Um, when King Saul and, 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 and Jonathan were overrun by the Philistines and killed in battle... Panic ensued at the royal residence. We got to get out of here before the the Philistines take the place. And in the panicked escape, Mephibosheth was was dropped. He was injured, probably had a spinal injury, and he is crippled in both feet, but in the Hebrew. That could be legs also. That's what's happened. The only other information that's new that we get um, about Mephibosheth is he doesn't live in his ancestral homeland he lives in somebody else's house at a place called Lo Debar, which, by the way, means no pasture. It doesn't sound like a very nice place, and I don't think it's supposed to. Um, if it doesn't rain here soon, we could call this place no pasture, probably also, but that's discussion for a different sermon, probably. Um, so he's got this son, Mephibosheth. Why he doesn't live at his granddad, he's probably somewhat hiding. He doesn't want to be around the new royal family, though we can't say that for sure. The rest of this passage is about Mephibosheth before David. Verse 5 starts this way, so David had Mephibosheth brought. And everything else in the chapter is a discussion between David and this crippled son of David's best friend, uh, Jonathan, his name is Mephibosheth. I want you to notice what he is called. This is the first time his name is mentioned in the chapter. It's been mentioned before in the book. We know who he is. But we're told here he is called Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. This is not new information for us if we've been reading this book. We already know this. What the author is doing is highlighting what's happening here. This is the heir of the previous royal family who's brought in to the new king. Mephibosheth, when he gets there, he fell on his face and prostrated himself in front of David. If we're picturing this in our mind's eye, I think we're supposed to see this, this disabled, crippled man struggling. I don't know how he even got there, but struggling to get down there in front of the king. Like, I don't... It's hard for me to get down here, but I'm getting down here. Why? Because he's scared spitless. Part of him has to think this might be it. 
But it's not. As soon as he gets down there, David calls him by name, Mephibosheth. He tells him, you don't have anything to be afraid of. Don't be scared. It's hard for us to see it in the English. But he says, don't be afraid. I'll surely show kindness. That's that word, hesed. Hesed is love that comes from being in a what? In a covenant. So he says, I'm going to be good to you because I am in a covenant with your late father, Jonathan. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to bless you. So David tells him, here's the way this is going to go down. I'm going to give all of your granddad Saul's land back to you. Later we're going to learn the guy who's been on it, who's super wealthy, he's going to become your servant. He's going to custom farm all the land for you. And you're going to get a seat at my table. That's repeated over and over and over in the passage. So if you think about this, if we would rewind 20 years to about the time Mephibosheth was born, Mephibosheth's daddy was the crown prince of Israel, next in line to become king. What would Mephibosheth's life have been like had his dad become king? You know what he would have? Wealth, land, inheritance, and a seat at the king's table. You see what David does? David gives him everything that's in his power to give him that he would have had had his dad gotten to become king. Now David can't give him like you can be the next king because that's, that's God's to give. But this guy gets, gets everything he would have had had his daddy become king. It's amazing. I want you to know in doing these things, David has gone above and beyond his promise to Jonathan. Go back into 1 Samuel, read it all. All David promises is to basically not round him up and kill him. But he blesses Mephibosheth beyond his wildest imagination. When Mephibosheth crutches his way or is carried in before David and falls on his face, I think the best thing he can hope for, I just hope this guy doesn't what? Doesn't kill me. Not only does he not kill him, he, he, he blesses him beyond his wildest imagination. He gets treated as if he is David's son. He gets adopted. David is treating Mephibosheth the way God treated David. That is why in verse 8, when Mephibosheth, he hears what David says, and he says, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Uh, what he says there is, like, who am I that you would treat me this way? You should be treating me like I'm a dead dog, which is not a good thing, in case you didn't pick up on that. Right? 
Here's what, here's what he's saying. What, like, who am I? Why would you do this? You should be my enemy, not my friend. And I can't do anything to benefit you. I mean, look at me. I'm not going to be some fantastic general in your army. We're not told this in the passage, but here's what I, here's how I picture David responding first. When Mephibosheth says, who am I that you would do this for me? I picture David going, I know. I mean, seriously, I know exactly how you feel. Isn't it awesome? Because when God promised David some promises, David said almost the same stuff to God. This was in chapter 7. David, here's God promise. I'm going to make you one of the most famous men in the whole world. I'm going to let you defeat all of your enemies. I'm going to bring the Christ, the Messiah, from your family line, this royal household. I'm going to build out of you. Your descendants going to rule over the earth forever and ever and ever. And you remember what David says? Who am I that you would do this for me? I know I don't deserve any of this. You should be my enemy. And you're not. You took me out of the pasture where I was a nobody tending sheep. And not only have you helped me survive, you've made me king and you were just getting started. You've blessed me beyond my wild, wildest imaginations. So when Ziba says, who am I? I don't deserve any of this. I can't do anything for you. And David says, tell me about it. Remember, David said, I want to treat Mephibosheth with the hesed of God. The loyal love that comes from a covenant. The rest of this passage is just further explanation of how David's going to bless and how he's going to set him up on the estate and all those things. I think this passage applies to us in, in two major ways. First, I think if we will ask this question, we'll be blessed by this passage. How is David's relationship with Mephibosheth similar to Jesus' relationship to you if you have believed that Jesus died in your place on the cross? If you'll think back through this chapter and ask yourself that question, how am I like Mephibosheth to Jesus, the way Mephibosheth was Mephibosheth toward David? The similarity pretty remarkable. You see, Mephibosheth went in there in terror, in fear, because he knew he was from the wrong family to be treated well by the king. You and I are like we're from the wrong family to be treated well by the king. We're from this family called the human race. And because we are born to human beings who are born to human beings who are born to human beings, we are all born, well, Paul says it this way, we are born uh, helpless, ungodly enemies of God. That's who we are when we're born. We're from the wrong family to be treated well by God. 
We should be enemies. Mephibosheth, because of his physical handicap, he could bring nothing to the table that, that would make David like want him because of what he could do for David. Remember, character, one mark of character is how do you treat people who can't do anything for you? Mephibosheth wasn't going to be a general. He wasn't going to be important agriculturally or industrially. That didn't matter to David. For you and me, Jesus doesn't redeem us because God needs our great talents on his team. God doesn't uh, pick us for his team like in PE class when you're, when you're picking teams, right? And you want the best player on your team, right? Or the best looking player if you were in, that's a different thing. God, God doesn't pick teams because he needs what you can do for him. God needs nothing from any of us. We are, like Paul said, we're helpless. We're helpless to walk in a way that would please God. God, God picks us simply because he loves us, because he promised. Another similarity in this story Mephibosheth didn't go seeking out David. David sought Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was scared to death of David, I think. I think he was hiding from David. I think he wanted no part of being near David. But David wasn't satisfied with that arrangement. David asked around. He sought him. He found him. He brought him in. God, we, we do not seek God on our own. Do you know that? God sought us. God was perfectly content being God. He was perfectly happy and content being God. He did not need any sinful people to hang out with. Do you know that? God wasn't lonely and in need of your companionship. But God sought people. Luke 19, Jesus said of himself that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Some of you, if you are like me, some of you right here this morning might be giving God in your heart the the stiff arm. You know what I mean? If you're, like, if you're like, I spent a great deal of my life, the last thing you wanted to do was hang out with God. It'll probably make my life lame. It'll probably take away my fun. He'll probably want to call the shots, or he'll probably make me into some sort of monk or something where he just wants me to pray and sing songs all day, and I got stuff to do. Anybody? Um... Sometimes God's not satisfied to let us live in the stiff arm. He starts to seek, to knock, to ask around, to pursue. 
If you've ever sat in here, if you've ever um, suddenly been watching some video on YouTube, some Christian program while you're driving down the interstate on the radio, if you sat in any other church and had heard any other message and you suddenly felt like, that guy's talking to me. Anybody ever, anybody ever feel like that? Um, I want to tell you, you're right. But it's not that guy who's doing the talking because God seeks people because he wants a relationship. Not because you can do something grand for him, but because he promised to seek and to save that which was lost. And that can be you. And just like with Mephibosheth, if you will fall down before the feet of the king and decide, I'm not going to be your rival. I want to be your servant. That's what Mephibosheth said. Here I am, your servant. If you'll fall down before King Jesus and say, I want this life to be yours. You should be my enemy, but you want to... Do you know what Jesus will do with you? Stuff very similar to what David did with Mephibosheth. He will adopt you. He will include you in the royal family. He will bless you beyond anything you deserve. You'll find one day all that stuff I was pursuing and chasing that I thought King Jesus would keep from me, he actually wanted to give to me greater than any way I thought I, I, I could ever have gotten it on myself. He will adopt you and give you a seat at the table. Now, you won't get everything you desire in this life, but someday you'll get way more than you ever had the capacity to desire. A seat at the table with the king. Oh, and he will call you by name. David said, Mephibosheth, you have nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing better anyone could ever hear with their ears than to hear King Jesus call them by name someday and say, what are you doing down there on your face? Stand up. You have nothing to be scared of here. I've already been punished for your sin. That's all gone. Come, let me show you to your seat at the table. That's one way this passage applies to our lives. There's another. We should be covenant people. We should be people who are in a covenant with God that God offered. What I just described. We should, be, we should have fallen down at the feet of King Jesus because there's nothing better for us to do. And we get entered into a covenant with Him. Where we understand, who am I that God would treat me like this? He should treat me like a dead dog. And you smell like one, two. No, that's not true. That's not true. We should, like David though, like David, we should be changed by the way God has treated us. You see, when, God when David understood how God had treated him, that changed David. 
into someone who wanted to seek how he could treat other people better than they deserve to be treated. How God had treated David, it made David gracious and merciful. Because that's how God had treated him. Are you a person that is colored by, characterized by grace, mercy? And I read with a friend of mine recently something I've been saying in Sunday school a lot. Keep this in mind. You cannot be gracious towards someone who deserves it. Do you know that? It's impossible. Because if they deserve it, it ain't grace. You cannot be merciful to someone who deserves it. We should be in covenant with the Lord, which changes us into covenant people. A covenant person commits himself, commits herself, binds himself in those commitments in a way that frees up the other person to love freely. You know what I mean by that? Real love binds itself in commitment in a way where the other party in the covenant is free from fear, from anxiety. They're free to show actual real love back. This is true in our business relationships. This is true in our contractual obligations, which are covenants. This is true in our marriages. This is true in our volunteer service that we commit to. We should be covenant people. Here's, Here's what I mean by real love binds itself in a way that frees the other person. If I'm a volunteer and I commit myself to something, it frees the people there from the fear of wondering, I wonder if he's going to show. In my marriage, I should, I, I commit myself, how about this, besides, before I say marriage, in my relationship to Rachel, I commit myself, I bind myself into the commitment of a marriage, Because that commitment frees her up to love me, not enable me. See, once I am committed in a way where she knows that that frees her up to love me with real, honest-to-goodness love, which means wanting to see what God would say is best happening in my life. And so now she doesn't have to, she shouldn't have to worry. I can't really tell him that because what if he gets mad? Maybe he won't be here tomorrow. So I better just enable the bad behavior. That's not love. Real love commits itself, binds itself in a way that frees the other party up to love with real love. In return... Or as a part of that, we are to offer accountability as a part of our commitments. While we're here, I just want to tell you how accountability should and should not look in a covenant. I'll continue to use marriage just as the example, but you can apply this to all of the rest of our commitments. Accountability is not something that Rachel takes so she can be like the cops and continue to investigate how I'm messing up. 
That's not the way it's supposed to work. Accountability is something I am supposed to give that allows her to love freely. Um, until very recently, I never had a code on my phone. Actually, Rachel made me put a code on my phone. Uh, just like, we got personal stuff on there. Put a code on there. But she knows it. She picked it. Why? Because she needs to be checking up on what I'm doing all the time. Is that what it's for? No. I want her to have that because I want her to know you can, you can be free to love me without worry. I don't want to have separate bank accounts that she doesn't know about. Because I don't want her to have to wonder what I'm doing. I want to give that to her. Accountability is given so that the other person is free from anxiety, fear, that sort of thing. Because real love binds itself for the good of another person. Real love gets its motivation from the covenant. Not my feelings. Not what seems like there's no risk involved. Or how do I know this person won't? And how do I know that someday she won't? And I, I, I don't know. But I'm going to bind myself to, in this case, my vows, to my commitments. Like David. Now, all of that just comes from what has been modeled to us by God. God is a covenant God. And, when, and God bound himself and gave himself so that we would be free to love him without fear. He, he became a man which still scrambles my brains to even think about. He bound himself to become a man just so he could be bound in chains, beaten nearly to death, but not quite, so he could be crucified under the weight of my sin. He bound himself. Then, after the resurrection of Christ, he bound himself again. He gave me and you, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit as a down payment in your heart, in your life. Why? So that you can know, John says, that you have eternal life. We don't live down here wondering, I wonder if God's going to like me today. He's probably going to leave. When I wake up tomorrow, he's going to be gone. No, he's not. Because he's not controlled by your behavior. If he was, he never would have come in the first place. He is controlled by his covenant by his commitment, by his character, not yours, which frees us up to not doubt as much, to love others the way he has loved me. So can, can we really treat people better than they deserve? Of course we can. God gave himself so that we can be secure in our relationship to him. We should be covenant people who keep our word and we should be out in the world. Changed people 
who have been changed by the way God has loved us. As we do that, we will become attractive for him, pointing people to him. How can you be like that? Man, if I was treated that way, let me tell you what I would be. And just like we heard from Kevin Chang a little bit ago, we said, or the farmer Dave, hey, the way God loved me is way greater than the way I am loving that other person who doesn't deserve it. Let's pray. Our Father, you have called us in before the court. We have, those of us who have believed in Christ, fallen down before the King and said, who are we that you would be our friend rather than our enemy? Adopt us rather than disown us. But you have called us by name. Given us a seat at your table. Adopted us as your children. Though we didn't deserve a bit of it. God, may we be changed by the grace and the mercy, mercy you have shown us. May we be gracious, merciful kids of the King in a dark world. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand up and uh, finish our time together?